recap a little bit on um, the uh, topic that I've been working with the last few weeks around the uh, five faculties and the five hindrances. I'm going to not talk a lot about the, the overarching of kind of all of them or as a group or as the two lists, but just to catch people up. How many people were here last week? Okay, so a majority, but I'll, I'll catch the rest of you up. And then I'm going to particularly talk about uh, one aspect, uh, that being one of the most challenging, I think, for people uh, in the West uh, to comprehend or to get a feel for, which is faith. People tend to have a aversion towards the word faith. And uh, I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit from the Buddhist perspective, and maybe it'll be helpful. But just to talk a little bit about, uh, from the last week's perspective, uh, faith, vigor, or, uh, effort, or effort, or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom are known as the five... Uh, Faculties. In other words, the five, the Buddha, the way the Buddha described it is the five kind of, uh, elements that are required to set foot on the path. To reach, uh, what we call liberation or nibbana, freedom from suffering. And in my view, you know, I don't really see these two lists, uh, lined up, but in my view and in my experience and my practice, they actually uh, directly work to battle the five hindrances. The five hindrances are the things that get in the way, the obstacles of our path or our practice. So faith uh, works to alleviate doubt, which can get in the way, or even skepticism, which can get in the way of our progress. Vigor or effort. Uh, works to alleviate sloth or torpor, sleepiness, sluggishness of mind. Uh, why meditate when you can nap? So, uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness, in the increased mindfulness, uh, is a really good way to work with aversion or ill will. And I talked last week about, uh, you know, mindfulness or awareness of anger is not anger itself. It's the awareness of. And so uh, sometimes we can get lost in anger or ill will or aversion. And by increasing mindfulness or awareness of, we can progress and just be able to see more clearly, really, that's what we're talking about. Concentration. Concentration works uh, as the counter attack or the counterpart for restlessness or agitation the kind of busyness the distraction of the mind and all the stories and all the things you could be doing and all the great ideas that come up or all of the physical sometimes the physical uh, aspects of restlessness I think that restlessness is very common in our culture the agitation of mind the kind of spinning out in thoughts and ideas that sound and seem so productive. Yet they have a place. And that's not necessarily meditation isn't the place. 
So concentration helps to ground the uh, restless mind. So wisdom. The cultivation of wisdom, the understanding, the uh, what Sylvia Bornstein calls the uh, knowing with a capital K. The deepest knowing. The knowing that we all have. When not obstructed, when not getting in our own way. And that wisdom helps to um, counter desire. Desire says, I want. Wisdom says, it won't last. Desire says, uh, give me. Give me more. And wisdom says, there's never going to be enough. So wisdom is really also the kind of uh, clear knowing of anicca and dukkha and anatta. So uh, anicca being impermanence or uh, the arising and passing away of all things. Dukkha being suffering and or the cause of suffering. And anatta being uh, that there's no fixed and permanent uh, self or uh, substance. So this is two lists that I like to I like to teach together. I like to practice together because I feel like they're really um, helpful in understanding. And they're just I actually just I feel like they're really useful. And the Buddha was pretty clear in saying you're going to encounter the hindrances, as he did, as. You know, countless meditation masters over the, you know, eons have. And you can overcome them by strengthening these faculties. So we have to have the faculties in order to prog- in order to progress. And then through the progression, through this practice, through the years of practice, uh, these faculties turn into what's called the powers, the five unshakable powers. So, for example, faith, which is going to be my focus for the night. Faith in its power form is is, uh, unshakable by doubt. So doubt still arises. But it's just just so grounded, so clear. That doubt doesn't actually penetrate the mind is a way to think about it. It arises, but it passes away very quickly. There's several stories that just popped into my mind, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll get to them later. So in talking about faith, you know, faith is, you know, the, the, the English kind of understanding or the Western concept of faith is different than the... Uh, uh, Eastern concept. Understanding of faith, well, I guess that's not totally true. I guess to say the Buddhist concept of faith is different than the Western concept of faith. Because in the Western concept of faith, uh, and in all religions, faith is required. The difference is that, and I've said this last week, faith from the Western perspective generally talks about kind of a blind faith. 
where faith from a Buddhist perspective really talks about a verifiable faith and a faith that increases over time and gets stronger, as I'm sure many of you have encountered or found in some way. So um, I'm going to be reading a little bit from some of the some of the teachings and then reflecting back on it. So spiritual progress you know, depends on this uh, emergence of these five virtues right? with five faculties of faith and vigor and mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. So progress depends on the, the emergence of and the cultivation of these five faculties. The conduct of uh, what's called an ordinary worldling or an uninstructed worldling, as the, is talked about in the Buddhist teachings, which is what we are. Yeah. There's the uninstructed worldling. We are maybe more the ordinary worldling, right? Not kind of reaching to the arahant level, the fully enlightened or the eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we're still dealing with that. So we're governed you know, uh, by our sense-based instincts and impulses. We're governed by this, right? And I talked last week, didn't I, about the dog kind of being pulled by its senses, by its sense of smell and wanting and, you know, ooh, ooh, kibbles and bits, right? You know? <laughs> or that, uh, there's that one commercial with the, like the, it's like a fake and bacon. It's like bacon, bacon, bacon. It's like chasing just everywhere, you know? <laughs> And I feel like that's basically what the Buddha is saying, and that's also what I believe to be true, what I found to be true. Uninstructed, we just jump from sense door to sense door, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. And it's not, it's no one's fault. We're not to blame. It's just the way things are. Being born into the body that is full of senses. And there is desire. There is craving. There is aversion. And there is pleasant, and there is unpleasant, and there is neither. And so without mindfulness or concentration or the cultivation of these things, um, we just keep, you know, mindlessly moving from one pleasurable experience to the next or avoiding one unpleasurable experience to the other. So faith is called the seed, right? And without without the plant or without it, the plant of the spiritual life cannot grow, can't start at all. Without faith, one can, as a matter of fact, do nothing worthwhile at all from the Buddhist perspective, without faith. And what makes me think of this, um, I think of a few examples. So faith, the other translations that I like to use are inspiration, confidence, conviction, And if we think about what motivates us to be to come here on Sundays and meditate or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever other days you might come here or meditating at home or going on retreat or giving up eating meat or stopping 
you know, uh, growing your own garden or, you know, whatever inspires us to do these things. And so the seed of, so there has to be some kind of like uh, inspiration. I think about what, what is primarily our inspiration here in the States? So this is just a question. Maybe a couple people just kind of say like one word or sentence. What was your inspiration for meditation, for Buddhism, to study Buddhism or to practice meditation? What inspired you? Stop being crazy. Stop being crazy. So some motivation to stop being crazy. So some recognition. Oh, I'm crazy. Yes. I wanted to master my mind instead of my mind being my master. Yes. So mastering the mind instead of the mind being the master. Yeah. How's that going? <laughs> Pretty good, yeah. So that's a verifiable faith. So you have this idea, this inclination, and then there's some. Then you practice. And then sometimes it gets a little crazier, but then eventually we start to, just like the dog, right? We start to, we can train the dog, we can train our minds. Great. Others? Respite. Respite, yeah, respite from what? From the mind, from the emotional turmoil. The turmoil, yeah. Mm -hmm. From dukkha. I mean, basically, that's what what, uh, the Buddha... One of the translations of, of dukkha is anguish, mental anguish, or torment of mind. Yeah, that's kind of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have to get out of my own way. Get out of my own way, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. Yeah. No. And I, I feel like, um, the, 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 so those are like the, mo- that's like the motivation. Then the inspiration came when I actually began, to, I saw a teacher. And then I read a book, and then I saw a friend that uh, that had made changes, and I saw some some calmness. I saw some some change, some uh, peace and ease, and that inspired me a little more. To oh, okay, maybe I'll give this a try. Mm-hmm. I started meditating. I, I heard a teacher that just was like, wow. You know, like Technot Han or His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Jack Cornfield or, you know, Mary Grace Orr. Or, you know, there's just so many teachers that we have, you know, that kind of carry a, a, some kind of energy about them. And the Buddha, too, the Buddha to be, Siddhartha Gautama, got some inspiration as he was becoming clear that. This world is full of suffering. He then saw the mendicant, the monk, who had given up the world, shaven his head, carried only a bowl, very simple life. Dana, get a, get a cushion. Yeah? There's plenty of them. And so, he was inspired. And actually, he cut off his hair, and he escaped the temple, where he had every need and want taken care of. And it wasn't; it still wasn't enough. So he went out, and he was inspired. He had faith 
that there was an answer to be found. And he wanted to look. So he did. And he began a journey, just like we have. So this is one of the inspirations when I, when I think about uh, faith. The seed, you know, uh, often in my business I actually say, uh, you know, I'm in the seed planting business. That's your job, you know, to grow your seed. But really that's what we're doing here. As teachers, we're just planting seeds. You know. the, the, this statue of the Buddha, it's a, it's a seed. It's a reminder. The Dharma. That's what the Dharma is. It's the seed that we have to nurture ourselves through our own practice and our care. Our care for the world and our care for our own awakening. That's kind of my view. So also the Buddha talked about this um, seed, but he talked about it a little bit in a different way. I'm going to back up and bring back in the hindrances. So the final battle that the Buddha did with his mind was under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, 2,550-odd years ago. And he sat with a strong determination. So he had vigor, had effort. Strong determination. Having gained concentration over years of practice. Having um, calmed the restless mind. He still had doubt and desire and ill will to work with. So the story is that Mara, Mara is uh, in the Buddhist kind of cosmology, the folk, uh, the, the, he's the, I don't know, the tempter, yeah, the tempter, the lord of death, they call, they call Mara. Mara is the egoic self. Really, some would say, actually, Mara is more the id. In, uh, from, a from, from a Freudian perspective. The id, this kind of, the instinctual, the impulses, right? Greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance. And so, thinking about um, the enlightened mind being maybe super ego, and the egoic self is the, where the battle takes place. So Siddhartha Gautama is sitting in front of a lotus or in front of a Bodhi tree, Banyan tree, with a strong determination. And then what, what arises in his mind is fantasy. Beautiful women, all the wonderful food that he could be eating if he just stopped meditating. He could go, if he just stopped the pursuit of enlightenment, of awakening, of truth. He could have whatever he wanted. 
So this, uh, this, these fantasies filled his mind, as maybe has happened for you, where the fantasy has filled the mind, desire. And what he began to do is see, is see clearly. He had enough concentration, enough mindfulness. He saw clearly that uh, no matter how much he fed desire, desire would always persist. It would constantly be there. It was never enough. So in his mind, what he began to do, and this is actually something that monks still do today, monks and nuns, is uh, imagine the beautiful dancing Shakti women that were in his mind, uh, that were imagining them not being young, but growing old right before his eyes and uh, uh, wrinkling and shriveling and their uh, skin beginning to deteriorate and and their flesh falling from their bones, and he was no longer uh, very desired. He wasn't. He wasn't uh, filled with desire in that moment. Actually, maybe aversion arose. <laughs> and he imagined all of the fruits and all of the beautiful food rotting. And this helped break the enchantment of desire. It's helpful. You should try. It doesn't always work, but. When it works, it works very effectively. <laughs> but just seeing the impermanent nature of things, that that which arises passes away, helps to just break the spell of beauty, of enticement. So then Mara set out uh, with an angry force. And the way this story goes is... That, you know, all of the kind of under, all of these, uh, in, in the cosmology, there is devas, and then there is, uh, kind of guardians of the underworld, right? The kind of demons that were the, the, uh, uh, part of Mara. They were Mara soldiers. So the soldiers of, of kind of hatred or whatever came to try to, uh, shake the Buddha from his seat. And they threw, uh, they shot arrows and they threw spears and they, you know, tried to scare him and try to get him angry so he would fight back. And so uh, the Buddha, really just seeing the the futility of anger, of hatred, just sent loving kindness and compassion. And the way that the story goes, the, the you know, the images that uh, all of the arrows and spears turned to lotus blossoms and fell at his feet. And that really angered the Mara. That really angered the Lord of Death. Who was basically scared. Scared that if we can, if we all see that desire is, if we're, if we're constantly trying to feed desire, uh, if we can then, uh, uh, if we can see that, if we can see that that doesn't lead anywhere, then we will gain some of our own power. And if we see that hatred doesn't actually stop hatred, then we can sh- change our own hearts. And if we see that we can have faith, where there's doubt, which is the the next kind of way that Mara uh, attacked the Buddha. He attacked the Buddha by saying, hey, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to sit here 
What gives you the right to be enlightened? What gives you the right to find freedom? What have you done? You were a, you know, a prince. You had everything you ever wanted. What makes you so special? And the, I really like the Thai version of this particular aspect of the story. This image behind me is the Buddha reaching down, touching the earth. And it's what's called the earth-touching gesture. And saying, um, the, as the earth is my witness, that I deserve the right. I've earned the right through my practice, through my generosity, through my virtue, through my ethical behavior, through my concentration, through my practice, through my commitment. I have faith that this is the way, this is the path for me. And um, in the Thai tradition that the earth goddess arose from the from from the from the, the earth on the by right by the tree and basically has the earth goddess has a long mane of hair that floods all of um, Mara's armies and the the way that that story goes is that the water is purity and the purification of his mind and that the earth goddess uh, basically in every it's like a kind of a custom you know like you know we spill a little for our homies that like to give a little to the earth when someone someone is drinking water they give a little water to the earth and so that that the earth goddess was like saving up over lifetimes of the Buddha being generous in that way so that's what the symbolism is there and in Thailand, there's these beautiful uh, statues of the earth goddess with kind of uh, like a hose and water like shooting out. It's interesting. But I like that version because it brings in the feminine. And the water uh, wipes away all of Mara's armies and purifies the Buddha's mind. In that moment, the Buddha becomes fully awakened. Free from greed, hatred, and delusion. So back to faith. After the Buddha becomes fully awakened, he's just kind of in a blissful state. And there's some different ideas about how long he just kind of stayed in meditation. And he must have got up and walked somewhere else because I've been to the spot and maybe there was a river really, or really, or a pond really close. Actually, there is a pond right there. But never mind. Yeah, there is a pond there. But, you know, this was 2,000 some odd years ago, so maybe there was more ponds <laughs> in India at that time. But what happens is that the Buddha is kind of in this blissful, fully awakened state. And he starts to doubt whether or not people will get it. And in the story, as he's retelling the story to his monks later, he's saying, you know, I I wasn't sure. It was so difficult. This battle with Mara, this uh, vanquishing of greed, hatred, and delusion within his own mind was so hard that he just wasn't sure if the world, if other people could get it. 
And this is where the term against the stream comes from. That as he's talking to others, he, he said that this, you know, this, this path of enlightenment, this path of awakening is so difficult. It's against the stream, against the flow of, of uninstructed worldlings, the status quo. It's against the stream of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is kind of going with the flow. And so he sat kind of contemplating whether or not this was possible. And so uh, the way the story continues is that he looked to to this pond and he saw lotus blossoms that are actually a symbol of awakening. And he saw that there were blue, there were blue blossoms and pink blossoms and white blossoms and some blossoms that were just underneath the surface and some blossoms that that never re, that were just seeds and hadn't ever broken through the dark muck muddy water that lotus blossoms grow in like in the muck you know and he saw that each of those blossoms came from a seed and that each mind had the seed of awakening and yet it's up to uh, it's up to us whether we cultivate that seed and it's up to karma it's up to our karma it's up to our effort so he became inspired actually to teach because at first he was kind of like eh, I don't know I don't know and then he got up from his seat and he made a strong determination. And there's some, it's some, there's some point in that conversation as he's uh, retelling to his monks, monks and nuns. He said that uh, he saw clearly that, that with each generation there will be some or few with less dust in their eyes that will be able to uh, purify their own mind. Using these five faculties. And that was enough. That was enough faith. Inspiration. That was also enough uh, compassion that he gained. In seeing, okay, so there is work to be done. There are some that can be freed. So I will teach. And then he set out and started the, the, gave the, gave the first teaching. Setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. At the Deer Park in Barnas, which is just north of Varnasi, 2,556 years ago, or something like that. So faith is different from just kind of accepting beliefs. Much more than just acceptance of belief. It requires a combination of four factors from the Buddhist perspective intellectual, volitional, emotional, and social. That we have to, uh, uh, to inspire faith, we need to have all of these. To be a matter of, of faith, a belief must go beyond the available evidence. So I just told you a story. 
And whether you believe that story or not, doesn't actually matter. What matters is if you believe, even though there really isn't the evidence that all that happened, that that can be also true for you. That's actually what matters. That's the purpose of that story. It's a beautiful story. I love it. Lotus blossoms inspire me. But it has to go beyond what's available as far as direct evidence, right? So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a juxtaposition from what I said earlier about verifiable faith. We can have verifiable faith that meditation works without ever knowing what the end result will be. So, so verifiable faith, it's like more will be revealed, right? We can only have, we can only know what we know. We can't go beyond what can be known in this moment. So it takes faith. So a believer must be willing and ready to fill up the gaps in the evidence with an attitude of patience and trusting acceptance. So this is where doubt arises. <laughs> doubt comes in and says, but what about, but what about, but what about, and we just can't know. So there's a few uh, counter, there's a few opposites to faith. So the two opposites of faith in this, in this, from this perspective is a dull awareness of things which are worth believing in. So a dull awareness. So like, just not, you know, like a dullness of mind. Like spacing out, no, it's not really caring. And then doubt or perplexity. These are considered the, the two opposites of faith. So a dull awareness of that which is worth believing in. So that which can inspire you. So in any kind of religion, some assumptions are taken on trust. And accepted on the authority of scriptures or teachers. In all religions, this is true. And this is where, you know, uh, uh, when it says like faith, like the, the refuge, I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. This is saying that there's faith. You're placing faith, trust, acceptance. That the Buddha was a teacher, did exist, did become fully awakened and enlightened. Even though... Uh, until 300 years after the Buddha died, there wasn't ever a statue. So there's some faith there. Faith in the Dharma. The teachings of the Buddha. Which, hey, I misrepresent all the time. But the essence of the teaching is there. And so there's some faith in that. And also, the Dharma is not just faith in the scriptures, right? It's, it's important to read the suttas. But again, nothing was written down for 300 years until after the Buddha died. 
300 years after the Buddha died, they started to go, maybe we should write this stuff down. <laughs> I don't know how, that would have been, that must have been an interesting conversation. But what I love is that the way the Buddha pointed and, and the way the, the Dharma continues to point to the Dharma itself. Truth in nature. Truth in your own uh, awakening. Verifiable faith. See if it's true. So what then... You know, um, are the objects of faith found within Buddhism? There essentially is four, four things that would go beyond our knowing. And I've talked about some of them, and you guys have questioned me about them, and I generally will answer the best I can, and then say I don't know because I don't. And that is the belief in karma and rebirth. The belief in karma. There's only so much experience that I have, and only so much experience that's known around karma and rebirth. And the Buddha even said again and again about how, you know, uh, we don't know what we don't know. And see for ourselves. And we need to have some trust. So the acceptance of the basic teachings about the nature of reality, such as conditioned co-production, otherwise known as interdependence, emptiness, or not-self. Kind of same thing. So this interdependence, right? It's there's certain a certain amount that we can see that it can become clear to us. But then there is uh, the the way in which codependent arising karma basically and rebirth plays out in our lives, in your life, in everyone's life. It just goes beyond what can be known. We can read it. We can talk about it. But there's a certain limitation based on our current understanding. Right? And it's kind of like this. I can't speak French. I don't know. Okay, I know like two words in French. Right? So if two French people or two people that can speak French are having a conversation, I'm not going to know. What they're talking about. Now I may be able to kind of catch a little bit of it. Right? Based on the two words. But that doesn't mean that French isn't real. And French isn't fully uh, understandable to other people. But to me, I can't understand it. Now given time and practice and dedication and concentration and effort... I could learn French and I could be fluent and I could have a conversation. Not that I have much reason. Spanish, maybe. I'd be more more interested. Same thing is true. Actually, Spanish is even better because I understand more Spanish but still not enough to have any kind of clarity. So this... Uh, understanding of emptiness and interdependency uh, and the nature of reality, dukkha, suffering, impermanence, 
and not self. There's only so much I can understand. So, number four on this list of the four things that one needs faith to progress. Actually, there's, I already said the third one. So, confidence in the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I already talked about that one. So, I feel like we understand that one. The fourth is a belief in the efficacy of the prescribed practice that meditation can work to relieve suffering. Now, this to me is something that in the beginning, when you're very first learning meditation, most people have doubts. But yet there's some inspiration, right? Like I was telling you. I could see it. I've actually, you can witness it in others. And that's inspiring. And then this is where verifiable faith comes in. Because based on practice, you might have some relief. Or at least understanding of why we suffer. That was super helpful. I didn't I haven't stopped much suffering, but I have a lot more clarity as to why I suffer. <laughs> and that's helpful. So I feel like there's more I could talk about, but I'm just going to end with this and we'll open up for a few questions. This is a quote by uh, Buddhaghosa from the Vasudhimaga. And it has to do with uh, faith and it talks about greed and clinging and desire. As on the unwholesome plane, greed clings and takes no offense. So faith on the wholesome plane. As greed searches for objects of sense desire, so faith for the qualities of morality. Or ethics. As greed does not let go of that which is harmful, so faith does not let go of that which is beneficial. So it's really countering greed, hatred, and delusion. Then this specific examples of the clinging that comes from greed. Faith is the uh, the kind of the, the confidence and the clinging. To that which is beneficial or or hopeful or wholesome. So again, faith, vigor, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. This is what we're here to develop. I wish you well on your journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.